कफस उदास है यारों सबास कुछ तो कहो Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SASPod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Saspod audience, this is Lalita recording a little intro to the podcast that you are about to hear. We really loved our conversation with Wasif Rizvi, the president of Habib University, which was recorded live on the Stanford campus. Because of that, there's some echo. We had to do some uh, post-production and the sound quality is not up to our usual standard but we so love the conversation because it was live, because President Rizvi was in town and we were able to speak to him in person. And so we're going to keep the podcast as is and ask you to please bear with us, turn up the volume. It's a really great conversation. So please listen all the way through and enjoy. Today, I am joined on the Sasport by Vasiv Rizvi. He's the founding and current president of Habib University. Pakistan's first undergraduate-focused liberal arts and sciences institution. Wasif is an ardent advocate of student-centered higher education and has been central to the launch of many interdisciplinary degrees, innovative programs, and state-of-the-art spaces on the university's award-winning campus. Habib University is an American-style liberal arts institution that is deeply committed to integrating contextual knowledge, historical experiences, and an appreciation of indigenous culture and arts into the curriculum, student experiences, and campus design. His belief in making world-class higher education accessible to traditionally disenfranchised populations has enabled Habib University to pioneer a community-owned, non-tuition fee-dependent model. He holds twin graduate degrees from Harvard Kennedy School and Harvard School of Education. Prior to founding Habib University, Wasif was associated with the Aga Khan Education Services in Pakistan, and he spearheaded many development projects across Asia and Africa. After this lengthy introduction, Wasif, welcome to the SASPOD. Thank you so much. I actually was not required to that lengthy introduction, but I'm very, very honored to be it. Thank you. It, it, I think it helps our audience to kind of contextualize uh, you and, and Habib, and we're going to learn a lot more about you. Tell me, first of all, uh, why are you at Stanford? Because we are actually recording on the Stanford campus. Yes. Deep um, University is uh, deeply indebted to Stanford. We started um, to reach out uh, in 2015, which was only a year after we launched the Oh, it's that recent. Right. Uh, so we launched the university in 2014, okay. just nine years old. And a year after, uh, so there were two reasons. One was that um, when we recruited our first class of students, whom we called the co-founders, um, many of them were wondering if uh, they'll get any kind of international exposure 
while they are doing their degree at Habib University. And one of the places where I was uh, very keen for them to go uh, was Stanford University. So here I showed up one year old university and seeking some sort of a student exchange partnership. Uh-huh. And it did actually happen. So we, uh, Stanford hosts about uh, eight to 10 students every year uh, from Habib University. And the other thing which was I was keen on was, uh, as you read in the intro, uh, where do we locate student-centered pedagogy? So there is a tension in higher education between research and teaching, and how do we credential and celebrate innovative and inspiring teaching and engaging teaching, especially interdisciplinarily. So the D school at Stanford was one mm-hmm. of the areas that we wanted to explore. And they were kind enough, we found out later, that they usually don't return anyone's calls. And emails. <laughs> Shh, I think that's meant to be secret. <laughs> Somehow they took it an interest in us. Um, so that's how this association started. And then we sort of uh, reached uh, various levels of agreements and partnerships. We wanted to have uh, some sort of a postdoc experience available at Habib uh, for the doctoral students or graduates uh, who were interested in the field or the area. We reached that agreement as well. Swift change was happening. And then we thought that we really need a continuous governing engagement with Stanford. So we offered two board positions to two of our very close associates who are Stanford faculty and staff. So Dr. Alexander Key, who's a, who's a professor in, in literature and, and, and releasing studies, and Sarah Stein Greenberg, who's the executive director at the D School. So both of them were kind enough to accept to be on our board. And why I am on Stanford campus uh, from December 8th till now, that both Sarah and Alex, they hosted a wonderful event at the Investor Common, um, very nice dining hall. Uh, All the nice uh, areas naturally are at the business school. (laughs) So, so... <laughs> so, so this was one of those nice dining halls <laughs> uh, uh, where we, we hosted about 60, 70 community members, uh, people of Pakistan origin in the Silicon Valley in Northern California, and some other folks who were interested in higher education, maybe international higher education. And we were able to present a university story and uh, honor two of our uh, very large supporters who are based in North America, one actually not far from here, uh, who endowed the first ever chair in Pakistan's history in humanities. Um, Pakistan, like many post-colonial societies, was sort of um, obsessed with STEM. Yeah, right. So, uh, but to endow a chair in humanities was a unique moment. And another gentleman from Houston, and his family who have endowed an entire school wow. of science and engineering at Habib University. So, so this was a nice event, sharing our story, honoring these gentlemen in the context of supporting a higher education cause for a change outside of the United States. Uh, United States universities have cornered 
almost the entire philanthropy that happens for higher education. Mm. Um, so we are perhaps one, one of the very few who are trying to sort of uh, channel it the other way. So, so we had a nice event on Saturday evening. Uh, that's why we're here. So, yes, um, uh, thank you for clarifying all that. And, and indeed, when I uh, read about liberal arts and then um, the kind of uh, uh, degrees that you offer, uh, it, it, I was wondering about that. Like, how do you sell that in Pakistan? Because the focus in South Asia is always so strongly on STEM. And then how did you get someone? I mean, I did notice that the person who endowed a whole school, that was STEM, and then the chair is humanity. So we, <laughs> we see a little distinction there. But nevertheless, how, what is their interest in uh, endowing the chair in the humanities? How did you persuade them to do that? Or did they come to you? Um, so obviously an introduction was made. Um, so the interest, we, one of the the any serious fallout uh, of doing STEM uh, became very apparent in post 9-11 Pakistan. Mm. Like we really, universities had no capacity to inspire or engage their students to make sense of a very difficult complex world. Um, So you can do a lot of STEM, (laughs) but you surely can't have that kind of discourse on, on those campuses. Yeah. And in Pakistan, it wasn't an abstract academic issue. It was a devastating issue. Uh, that there's mayhem around us in Pakistan. And young men and women had no intellectual agency to connect with it, to make sense of it. So they were inventing their own. Yeah. So there were countless incidences when uh, brilliant students out of engineering and medical schools were found in extremist camps. Um, so, and there was a study done on that as well, which was provocatively titled Why Engineers Make Good Terrorists. So there was already a reflection that what's going on. And the other aspect was that Pakistani society and as many uh, societies in the global south are thrown with these pressures of modernity and modern movement, uh, forced national identity, and in case of Pakistan, especially religion. Yeah. And so we then imagined a program which would be, we call it epistemic reparation. Mm-hmm. But we have to really imagine uh, intellectual standpoints that our young uh, students can make sense of the world, of art, of history, of society, of politics from the standpoint of their own civilization. Yeah. Um, so liberal arts as an overarching framework is helpful to accommodate that. In, in the U.S. higher education story, traditionally very marginalized groups did rely on liberal arts-style education for them to become intellectually engaged. Right. So black colleges, right. women, all the right. minorities. So it's... From a structural point of view, this was the approach that we have to have. A core liberal arts curriculum, whether we be in STEM or non-STEM, but there will be a shared experience. And that experience is going to be a sequence of engaging with sort of philosophy, history, um, religious studies, uh, from standpoint of Islamic humanities, 
uh, nationalism from a standpoint of, if you build questions and history of why Pakistan is there in the first place. So, so that uh, fabric and framework started to make sense to many stakeholders, uh -huh. whether they were parents or employees or larger society, but that's important. So we don't need an ism or a reaction, it's an intellectual way of making sense of this difficult world. And once our engage with whoever going down that chair immediately makes sense. Because uh, they are based in North America, they have seen any such initiatives being supported. Yeah. And they saw that some actually even much engineered audience for that kind of support. So, so in the end, it wasn't that difficult to yeah. make that case. That's fantastic. We already have a few years of actually doing it. Is there pushback from within Pakistan against Habib University? Is, are you considered um, you know, un-Islamic or, or anti-religion or anti-government or any of those things? So in, in a straight way, I don't think people are able to make sense of what we are. <laughs> So we are, we are, we are suitably so you can fly under the radar. Suitably complex because we are very independent. Uh, there's no celebration of West or Western. Yes, right. So it's plenty of living inside. Yeah, you know, very critical understanding of that this modern woman hasn't arrived out of natural progress of history. It's enormously violent. Destructive for the world, for sure, and whatever in that field. But it was intuitively felt, but never intellectually engaged with. So, so, so that it's that helpful conclusion for us. <laughs> so that these guys definitely are not progressed. Right. But they're not really Islamic either. So, right. So, so, so all those binaries are not there. Yeah. It's a much more complex picture. So that allows us to continue to people our mission. I mean, except that there have been, you know, some moments here and there and, and, and certain ideas, especially more than Islam. Islam is just a cover. I think a much more vicious layer is the nation state. Yeah. So, so those guys are always on the lookout if there is another narrative you know, change. But if you're very reasonable quality. Everybody wants their kids to go to university as well. So eventually, I think at a personal level, people will see that this is an important institution, this is an important project, and we shouldn't meddle with it too much. Um, is, do, did I hear correctly that you're not tuition fee dependent? Does it mean that it's free or it's free for some people? It's free for all. Much to the dismay of our fund. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, oh, so your aim is to be like the Stanford of Pakistan, but if you don't charge fees, then you're anything but the Stanford of Pakistan. <laughs> right. So, right. So I, I actually personally don't like anything of anywhere. Uh, there's a fine Stanford here. Because the, the, the yes, that, that was tongue-in-cheek, <laughs> just to <laughs> clarify. <laughs> so... <laughs> now, um, so, so this is this is a very key thing, right? So we saw that we have to to 
address three deep problems in Pakistan connected with higher education simultaneously. We wouldn't have a serious or, or a formidable institution grounded in the mission that we wanted to ground it in if we didn't address all three of them together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first one we talked a bit about, what is our uh, intellectual position? Uh, and again, in a, in a term that is epistemic reparation. That, and it's, we really need to create an environment in which uh, there is a different view of the world possible. Yeah. Uh, and that requires rigor and creation of content which is either to listen and engaging our students with it and imagining a different kind of pedagogical experience. Um, not really getting bogged down by you know, folks who are only uh, only reference point is an R1 university and they see teaching as a as as, as some sort of facilitator mm-hmm. and creating any kind of inspiring contract with students is difficult. Sitting and when I'm writing the book is relatively easy. Right. So so that's why the, the trend is that the way it is. So, so that was the first part that we have to create a student centered, really inspiring, pedagogically unique, epistemically independent intellectual experience. Now that's a work in progress and it perhaps the entire of the university for it to continue on. Sure. But the second problem problem was that who are we giving this experience to? Yeah. Because if we were to price it, like all the universities outside the United States, it still is very, very fortunate that millions of people are mobilized to support higher education. That's not the case in Europe. That's not the case in Pakistan. Or their higher education as a result of European colonization. That's not the case in Australia. It's not even the case in, in, in Canada. Right. Huh. So, so, so when people don't support higher education, so there's one process like Holland or Germany that the state would tax and, and subsidize or make it available. Mm-hmm. And if private universities start to emerge anywhere, as they did in Pakistan, they have no other revenues to right. except for tuition. So, so we were seeing that in Pakistan, that one can have a nice idea but it then becomes only available to 5% of possible students right. that can pay the fee. Yeah. So the grand intellectual claim that we were making would have been very vacuous right. if it's only given to the study segment. So yeah. we we'll say, all right, we're going to be the first non-provision dependent private university but- ever in 387 years, there are some less tuition-dependent private universities in the U.S. who don't recover all of their costs from students because right. of endowment and because of very large donor base. Yeah. But they don't exist anywhere in the world. Right. So we said there's no law that's stopping it from happening. Yeah. Uh, but the reason they, it doesn't happen because there's no philanthropic culture yeah. that exists either in Europe or in Canada or in Pakistan which looks at higher education as a serious cause. Yeah. So it's just, that was the third problem that we have, to, we will be the first one to craft that culture. Mm. We have to, it has two benefits. Obviously it allows for resources to be generated, 
but much more importantly, it allows for larger society to become a stakeholder in higher education. Mm. So they start taking interest and they act as currently, unfortunately, it's not a good moment to talk about it because it is proving to be a horrific two-edged sword for U.S. institutions. Correct. But for centuries, the stake of community protected the universities yeah. quite strongly yeah. from the excesses of maybe an overbearing state or other groups. Yeah. And universities remain quite fiercely independent. Mm -hmm. So that's the, the great benefit that comes from it. So the money then becomes a mean to an end. The end is this large stakeholding. So we, we said, we, we shared that with our founding donors that look, you have to support it for maybe 15, 20 years. In the meanwhile, we'll continue to build this culture. Right. And we'll bring more and more people. Right. So that has allowed us to statistically become the world's most generous private university. Wow. So we only recover 25% of our cost from students, which, are, which we offer a massive 75% discount. Wow. Which then in turn allows us to support almost all students. Right. Now within that, we have made, we have ensured that, so we are already 40% uh, there, uh, so half of the students, I mean 50% of the students have come from what is known as public exam, public high school exam, mm -hmm. which is there for modest income people. Sure. And there is a private high school exam, which traditionally would, would take almost all the enrollment in, in, in uh, good private universities. Because the private high, high school exam would mean that's, that this student is coming from a, a well-off background. Mm -hmm. So automatically the university would be inclined to give them preference. Right. Over. So what we have done is that half the students come from public funded high school and they are guaranteed four years of complete uh, freedom, which was their biggest concern. Of course. And in nine short years, easily, they're always among our best students. Yeah. That's, that's actually, I mean, that's a point that's so worth making and, and I hope you make it frequently. Right. Um, I want to ask you um, a follow-up question about this kind of innovation that you're doing. But before we go into that, I want to just ask you about language. What language does Habib teach in? Most of the courses are still in English, but Urdu is a requirement. Okay. It's a part, part of the core curriculum. So they have to be profit, not proficient, but literally Urdu uh, is a requirement. So, wow, that could be hard for some of the yeah. students, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, it is hard. It is hard because the assault on global epistemology is, is massive. Yeah. Um, so even students who do speak Urdu at home are unable, they are not in any way engaged with Urdu literary traditions. Right. So, so that's a requirement. Does it kind of level the playing field? Because I imagine that students that live largely Anglophone lives are also not familiar with this kind of literary right. Urdu. So right. now everybody's struggling. Is yeah. that the idea? And that is exactly <laughs> yeah. It has to be an equal, equal opportunity misery. Right. For, for all students. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
are you are you invited to speak in places like to what extent have you become or you and and your board members have become kind of um trailblazers for this kind of um model of donor funded free private universe like it it feels so um contradictory in so many ways and yet the the aim is so fantastic right so yes i i have been speaking about it. we have already influenced many um very established universities in pakistan they are trying to break these taboos that they have neglected for decades uh, why are some fundraising they are introducing idea of dogs here and there and there. So uh, we, 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 we are mindful, though, this is like a tightrope and there's no right answer. We're mindful of not over-projecting as a very new. Right. So, so I think as much as I like the sound of my own voice, <laughs> I, 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 I do apply constraints. <laughs> Where do we project it? But I was very honored to speak just before coming to California. I was in Boston. It was an annual conference for New York Commission for Higher Education, who are going to be accrediting the university as well. Those original commissions, like Stanford Bates, accredited by Western states. That's a new one. That's the oldest one which sort of accredits the Indian suspects half of the age. So they, we applied for their accreditation because they were open for international. And they visited Habib and were so moved that they thought I should speak at their, their annual meeting, uh, which I was able to do uh, a few days ago. And in Pakistan, of course, as well. Uh, regionally, too, because private universities are new in, in South Asia. Sure. And all of them are fee-dependent. And... Almost none of them are liberal arts. Right. And even if they are liberal arts, they are just copy and paste from an Amherst curriculum, perhaps. Right. right. So, so lots of very unique things that Habib are, yeah. are intriguing for folks. Fantastic. Um, you went to um, the Kennedy School, right? And then you also have a graduate degree in education. Yeah. So this this kind of mix of policy and education... How does that, I think we've gotten a sense of it, but can you articulate a little bit more of how that fits into your kind of vision for higher education? So I was, you know, as a student many years ago, not going date myself, <laughs> uh, <laughs> many years ago, uh, I was, uh, for me, the institution of university was far more interesting always than the content, which I thought was always moving and changing. Mm-hmm. And I was, they were truly, to be honest, impressed with the Western canon. I thought it was pretty self-serving thought <laughs> most of the time. So, so because I wasn't really inspired by the content, so the other thing that I took then much greater interest in was uh, was the, the, the nature of the institution, right? And the nature of the institution, the policies, and the governing principles behind it history and so on. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be at Harvard, which is the oldest institution of higher learning in the United States, oldest private university in the world, um, which allowed sort of this investigation informally. And then I wanted to study it as a, from a policy 
policy and educational perspective as well. And that led me to sort of this realization that there is very little self-awareness regarding the uniqueness of U.S. higher education story. Yeah. It is very, very unique with all the flaws and, and deficiencies that it entails. It remains extremely unique. No other country in the world has been able to replicate it. And there's a reason, I'm not sure how long it's going to continue, but there's a reason. So only 25% of total universities in the world are private. 75% are public universities. But if you looked at the world's top 30 universities, 25 of them are U.S. private universities. Mm. So there's an enormous outsized representation of excellence, which has come out of this particular tradition. Um, so our somewhat annoyed friends at Humboldt or at <laughs> Oxford or Cambridge who asked this question that, and I think the answer is that society took much greater ownership of universities in the United States, larger society, and it was you know, from rich to alumni to athletes to common people uh, who took a lot of pride in it. Uh, we saw phenomenal exhibit of that in 2008 elections when perhaps as, as red a state as it gets, Iowa, as a result of mobilization by the students of the University of Iowa, Barack Obama won Iowa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> won the university because it is so connected to people and, and mobilizing students are able to so it's, it's just not possible, this kind of interface of society and community and yeah. universities yeah. just not there anywhere in the world. Yeah. Uh, huh. So, so this, this was something fascinating for me. I, I, I wanted to sort of understand it more. Um, and then I got the opportunity many years later to work on this project. This uh, insight really greatly helped in arriving at and the things that I wanted to really sidestep was the epistemic side. So two things. So one is that I thought that your, your Euro-centered epistemology is hopeless. It has led to the world what it has led to. Yeah. Um, and it has marginalized billions of people. Uh, and now, more than ever, it's kind of a little sheepish and questioning itself that it wasn't the greatest idea as we thought it was. Right. <laughs> the way the planet is. Um, so even for existentialist reasons, apart from sort of obviously making a great case, which is intellectual, but even existentialist reason, some imagination has to come from others, some other source. This imagination is only leading to the SpaceX and and billionaires are running rampant. So, so, so we, we, we have to do something else. So that's the first thing we wanted to sidestep, that why we were inspired by this phenomenon. We're not really enamored by the intellectual content of it. Mm. And the other thing which is structural was that, which is sort of connected to the phenomenon, the past 40, 50 years, the, the research enterprise uh, fueled by hypercapitalism, 
really has taken over the entire reality of the university. Yeah. And so much so that PhD is basically just training people either to win some grants or not have any career. And in all of that, the, the, the most marginalized folks were the undergraduate students. Right. Which was really seen as a, a terrible annoyance by tenured professors that how do we have to do it? Um, and the joy of, of creating a learning community was long gone. Yeah. From my so this was the other thing that we were very mindful of, that we are going to create great student-centered, engaged pedagogical model uh, and rehabilitate, restore the dignity and intellectual primacy of teaching and celebrate it as much as anyone would celebrate publication. So creation of a great innovative course is, a, is as big, maybe a bigger accomplishment than maybe publishing an article. Well, that is, that is quite innovative. Right. <laughs> so, so that's when we wanted to give up a grant. But it's hard because you don't find many such self-aware, fresh PhDs. They right. Been, they've been doing it for the last 20 years, and obviously that's... Well, we get trained to think in a certain way, I suppose. And when you say that the top 30 universities, I guess I, I want to ask as defined by who, because if it's the private universities who create these lists and aren't they just going to rank them? So, I mean, what are the, what are the, um, uh, it reminds me of this study that said that having, um, what was it? It was something ridiculous, like living in an environment with many trees leads to better grades or something. Like it was so obviously that it was wealth that was right. at the bottom of all of this. Right. Like you get these bogus studies. And so I worry about these university rankings. I do. I do. I, so that, that point is well taken. But let's say even if we don't go into ranking, these universities have a remarkable story. Like right. Harvard, the Yale, the Stanford, sure. uh, the Liberal Colleges, the sure. Swastor, and so on. These are phenomenally brilliant places for students as well as for faculty. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, and to be able to do it, um, not because the emperor likes it or the duke likes it, or uh, it's just so people coming together and crafting such institutions uh, to be a very interesting story and a unique one in high education folklore. Yeah. It doesn't exist. Yeah. So a lot of this seems to be around athletics. When I moved to the United States, I was, the, I was at the University of Wisconsin before I moved to Stanford. And obviously the Badgers are a huge part of kind of university law. And I mean, it, I just couldn't believe it. Like, What's happening here? Um, and I've, I've, I've grown used to it now, having been in the United States for um, 14, 15 years. Um, but I feel that sports play an enormous role in this kind of alumni engagement. It's, it's the bit where we all find each other. Does Habib have, have its own cricket team or what's happening there? That's a tough one, right? So because that's another part of culture which is completely different and it has no association with, with universities. Right. So the, the, the sports culture in Pakistan is usually um, impoverished neighborhoods. It's a bit like sports culture in South America. Right. So I think that association is even harder than convincing people to become donors of universities. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I think while I would... I, I like it, I enjoy it, 
uh, I think there are some interesting aspects to it. But I think that's a battle for maybe... Uh, the next, next president of... For the next president. <laughs> yeah, fair <laughs> enough. It's, 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 it's too disconnected currently. So. Yeah, fair enough. Um, it sounds like such a great university. I'm wondering what... Um, what number of international students you attract or if you do and, and how the fee structure works for them. This is where you sell Habib to the world. So right. take your moment. So the, the advantage of doing that in Pakistan is that the, the hyper-capitalism is, is, is pretty, uh, <laughs> let's say, uh, mediated there. So, so the total cost of a student at Habib is $7,000 a year. Uh, which is it's a lot of money in right. rupees but it's it's, a, it's it's small amount right yeah. so, so uh, we because so we're in the process of expanding and building some doors mm-hmm. i think that right. will become a place for international students yeah. to come there is interest in especially in diaspora south asian yeah who want to go and point themselves with language such interesting courses so that's definitely the. I think in about four or five years we'll be making unfold it. Um, that's one revenue stream I wouldn't feel guilty about <laughs> <laughs> about creating. Uh, so we, we we obviously we don't charge much money, right? Uh, to students in Pakistan, but I think it's also important for community building. Yeah, I think because it's it's as I, I've talked a lot about the uniqueness of of U.S. higher education, Habib in itself is perhaps one of one. It's a very unique institution. I think it would be a a powerful experience for driven students to come and spend some time there. You've talked about um, what you call hyper-capitalism, and I wonder if you can speak a little bit more to... um, the kind of the idealism that you that you express about a, a, a private university like Habib, which is so different, I think, from other models, how are you going to protect it? I think that universities, obviously, by by the core nature, as long as we vulnerable. Right. I, I I think that they can only be protected if one creates uh, enough engagement and awareness and consciousness regarding their specialness. Uh, in the U.S., we have seen it precipitously drop in the past 20 years, starting with the Bush U.S. presidency, and now uh, it's mind-boggling for me the kind of questions that are asked uh, about the viability of the necessity of university. Absolutely. And in Pakistan, though, it seems that we are some ways away from it. Right. It is a great deal of celebration. And, and value uh, we feel the attributes to us, which in itself is a protection. We have to obviously do the nuts and bolts of protection and building the endowment and making it financially independent as, as independent as possible. Sure. Um, so, and keep on working on this greater stakeholder with, with all the groups that this is. Uh, Eventually, uh, the key to it is that if we are, in fact, seen as um, generating enough reflection, consciousness, critical insight, and skills, 
to be able to provide some solution to what the whole planet is encountering. Mm. And I think in that too, there is an element of of uh, of us being protected. Uh, if if indeed we are seen as as a place which where it is actually happening, I see it actually happening at least in the lives of these students. Then. Uh, this is a very difficult time for young people in this atomized, a screen and a, and a person, and now perhaps an AI avatar of a person. Right. So it's kind of horrifying. Yeah, but to curate a community uh, who are sort of protected via some critical consciousness of what's happening in the world, and they at least have each other with, with it the sense of empathy and, and uh, intellectual endeavor uh, is already contributing very significantly. But I think in terms of um, actually following interesting and very seemingly intractable problems in Karachi, which is a city of 30 million, with some communities, um, addressing the world uh, from a confident, independent standpoint, all of those are accomplishments which, which I believe most of these boys to have. It sounds fantastic. I'm so grateful that you made time to speak to us and, and tell us about Habib University. What's your favorite uh, place at Stanford? At Stanford? Yeah. It's um, my favorite place at Stanford. Um, I am a bit biased towards Stanford for South Asia. <laughs> Um, well, <laughs> of <course>. thank you. <laughs> no, because, no, because this was the first place that I came, and Thomas Blom Hansen, who used to be a director, is a dear friend. Um, and I have admiration for Center for South Asia, wanting to be really Center for South Asia instead of just Center for India. Yes. Um, so, which is actually quite challenging, but <laughs> but um, in 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 terms of just the. Uh, the focus of higher education in the United States towards India. So right. it's it's something that we're very very mindful of. And thank you for pointing that out. Right. I appreciate that. So, so yeah. So so, so that obviously you know, I, I I have a good friend, uh, Nadeem Hussain, who's a professor in philosophy. So because of him, I have hung out at the philosophy building, um, which is interesting. Um, it's having weird conversations, which I like. Of course. <laughs> so, so that that would be another one. Uh, but I think that Chennai is uh, such a phenomenal campus. I sometimes am uh, a little averse to overly curated grass fields, <laughs> <laughs> which, 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 which which look a bit like you know uh, uh, you know some sort of a billionaire mansion or something. Right. Uh, but. Other than that, I think it's just a beautiful, inspiring campus to come to. I just sort of saw some student activity. It was wonderful talking to those young women uh, who were taking a sort of brave position on campus. Mm-hmm. Um, so just the environment as well as what it's cultivating is, uh, is always inspiring and energizing. Thank you. And, yeah, I, have, I must mention before I offend a dear friend of ours, Deesful. Deesful is, is this fantastic place which in a way launched the counter campaign for innovative pedagogy 
in a overwhelmingly Argonne University. Right. So, so they have provided something truly fantastic uh, to Stanford and to the world. Thank you. Um, on that note, we will end. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today and safe trip back to Pakistan. It is absolutely my pleasure. I actually really loved having this conversation. Me too. Um, as always, I want to thank Soham Shiva for creating the beautiful intro and outro to, outro to the podcast and Manar Flavel Kaniar, who for the first time will have done post-production to this episode. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon. Come